0: Thank you, everybody, for downloading another episode on the Detroit Sports Podcast Network. This is the Doc, John Macaroon, and this is the one-on-one podcast where I get a chance to talk in-depth with fascinating people. And on the show today, we're lucky, we're blessed enough to have Marcus Ogden, former NFL offensive lineman. He wrote a great book titled Sleepless Nights, The NFL, A Business and Family. Marcus, thank you for joining me today. How are you?
1: Doing fine, Doc.
0: How about yourself? Oh man, I'm doing good. I I wrapped up reading the book earlier this week, and I just wanted to say it was a great book, interesting read, and I'm looking forward to going more in-depth regarding the book, your NFL career, some news and notes in the NFL, and things like that.
1: So i Doc. I'm glad you enjoyed it. We uh, worked very hard on it. to uh, do by a great product. if you getting... Great reviews so far. He's got about uh, 14 or 15 five-star reviews between Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and things are going along very, very well.
0: Now, growing up, you are the brother of NFL Hall of Famer Jonathan Ogden. How did you get involved in football and growing up? How did you get the bug to play to play uh, sports as a kid?
1: Well, you know, Doc, growing up, uh, my father, who played football at Howard University, never really pushed football on us, per se. He said, if you want to play, I'll, I'll support you guys. But he never really pushed on us. And my brother started playing in seventh grade. He went to St. Albans uh, High School in Washington, D.C. And then after that, when he played, I ended up following his footsteps as a freshman at St. John College High School in Washington, D.C. So football, we always just knew it was in our blood just to play because our dad did it. You know, he never forced us to do it, but we just really enjoyed it. And then you know, being raised by our father, it was always really nice to have that sport Outlet or outlet, excuse me. That you could that you could do, you know, to of frustration and to you know stay in shape and to kind of you know get some camaraderie. So football was something that we both decided to do at a, at a particularly young age. I was thirteen, Jonathan was I think eleven.
0: When you started playing football, did you take to it right away? Were you a natural, or did you take a little bit of a time to develop and uh, find your niche in the sport?
1: Oh, no, it took some time. Uh, My freshman year, I mean, I started all four years of high school, uh, JV and varsity. Uh, I was a freshman, sophomore, JV, and junior and senior varsity starter. But I really didn't learn the game, per se, probably until about my senior year. Like, I found my niche. Uh, I was kind of a big kid that was always, you know, uh, very athletic, you know, but still wasn't very uh, uh, quick-footed, shall we say, um, with my footwork. So, you know, I, I finally found my niche when I was a senior But, you know, overall, I had great coaching. I had great help from my head coach, my position coaches. So it kind of grew on me very, fairly quickly.
0: Yeah. And you wrote in the book that throughout middle school and throughout schooling, you did experience a little bit of bullying. And that was a challenge for you just based on your self-esteem and how you kind of presented yourself being a shy kind of kid. What was that experience like, you know, growing up and playing sports, but at the same time, not maybe fitting in or dealing with some social issues that people are talking about today?
1: It's very, it was very difficult. Um, you know, being a very large uh, individual, uh, in, in my youth, I really experienced bullying from, you know, kids my own age, uh in school and of course, you know, from the opposite sex and stuff of that nature. Uh and again it's, it's it's normal stuff that you that you go through in, you know, middle school, high school, but it doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. Uh I really had a I had a great father, So He was very instrumental and very helpful in that process, but I was very fortunate to that fact, but it was still difficult, uh, you know, not being one of the cool kids, uh, you know, not being uh, a kid. Everybody know you well always go to or if I thought I was always super cool or super fun to be around. So it was hard to kind of deal with sometimes, but I found football to be a great release of that. And then my, by my senior year, I was one of the cool kids because I was probably, you know, I was a big time football player at my high school.
0: Um, did you feel like, you know, at the time, I know, the prevailing attitude to deal with bullies is to, you know, fight back or to handle it. What were some of the ways that maybe you dealt with it? Did you talk to your brother, your dad, or did you kind of surround yourself with the team? How did you deal with bullying at the time back when you were growing up?
1: Uh, I did it into some fights. Uh, I did get into altercations. Uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, sometimes you, when you're young and imprudent, you can be um, very impatient and just kind of want to lash out at people, which I did. You know, I I ended up getting some counseling when I was probably, I guess, like 10 or 11. I started seeing a very um, world-renowned therapist named Dr. Audrey Chapman over at Howard University. I went to see her. Uh, As I got a little bit older, sports, uh, organized sports, particularly football, became a vital part of my ability to deal with all the bullying uh, and the frustrations. So, but of course, my dad was very, also, like I said earlier, very easy to talk to. Uh, He could relate to stuff. He was a very big child growing up. Myself. my brother, um, he went to an all-boys school. It's so a little bit different for him. You know, he was always kind of cool because there's was just all boys, and you know, everybody. Was, he, he was six foot nine in the eighth grade. so I kind of looked up to him anyway. So it was kind of—I didn't really talk too much about bullying per se, but my dad was very, very on point at that, uh, with that topic uh, throughout my whole, uh, you know, childhood.
0: Yeah. So now you're 18 years old and you're, you're playing football, and what was the recruiting process like for you? Were you heavily recruited, or what, was, what went into the process before you ended up at uh, Howard University?
1: I was not heavily recruited at all. I got no scholarship offers from a D1 program at all. The only D1 school that showed interest in me was the University of Maryland, um, who was coached by the time by Ron Vanderlinden, and my office line coach, who was recruiting me, was uh, Steve Greatwood, who now, I believe he's still currently at University of Oregon as an O-line coach. You know, it was this very, very uh, interesting process. You know, uh, I was 6'3 in high school, 6'3 and a half, so I wasn't, I was tall, but not like big, big tall. You know, I was probably 295, 300 pounds, you know, but I was in a very humongous league of great athletes. Uh the WCAC, it was like Gamatha, Gonzaga, uh McNamara. I think it was probably twelve or thirteen of us that all got Division one football scholarships. Uh Brian Westbrook who played for the Eagles who went to their Hall of Fame. He and I played against each other in high school. My buddy Marvin Brown played for University of Alabama, who went to the Ravens for a little while. Uh, also we had, uh, Zach Hilton, who went to the Chapel Hill, who played for the Saints for a while. John Day Owens, with Notre Dame, who now uh, played for the Bears for a while. So we had some really, really big, strong talent in high school, uh, coming out, uh, for me. So I did not get much recruited, uh, to my father's surprise. I only received one scholarship offer and that was Howard University.
0: Okay, and so you took it. And uh, before we talk a little bit about your college experience, just watching football, I know around that time, it, you know football was just starting to get, you know again very big around with more media, more attention. ESPN's role began to increase at that time. And uh, who did you look up to? Who did you like to follow? who are your who are your football role models at the time?
1: I love, and still to this day, I do love Barry Sanders. Uh, play the game with a high level of charisma, charm uh deception with his moves and his cuts and his quickness, very uh team oriented guy, very faith driven guy. Now at that time of course when I was younger, Faith was really important like it is today for me, but it makes me walk it doesn't it makes me feel really good that I liked him for so long anyway, because as I get older, Faith's very important. But he's just a great football player. played on such a bad team. I mean the Lions unfortunately were just oh I mean, back in those days, if he won five games he was lucky. But you know, and he walked away from the game you know, on top. I mean, he retired early, which I thought was very gracious. He uh, had a great, you know, 19-year career you know, Hall of Famer. So he did what he had to do. But he definitely was uh, my favorite player of all time, was, uh, definitely Barry Sanders.
0: And then among sports fans, the big debate, and whenever you're at a bar or when you're talking with the boys, the debate is, okay, Barry Sanders or Emmitt Smith? You know, a lot of people will say, hey, if Barry Sanders had Dallas's offensive line, they would have won more. And uh people will say, well, Emmett Smith was very talented, hardworking, but if you put him on the Lions, he wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer. H- how do you weigh in how do you weigh in on one of the classic sports debates in the NFL?
1: I agree. If you if Emmett Smith's behind Detroit's off the line, he's not a Hall of Famer for sure. <laughs> if you put if you put Barry behind that line, he's a Hall of Famer and you know, and he's probably one of the best backs, if not the best back his, uh, in history. I mean, if Dallas off line at the time, Mark A. Uh, he had Daryl Johnson, he had, you know, Nate Newton, he had Larry Allen, you know, he had uh, you know, Eric Williams, who's actually is a personal friend. Eric Williams played for the Ravens for a little while. Uh, and then they had uh, my favorite player, uh, Mark Stepnowski. So they yeah, they had a huge, huge off the line. They were great, they were hogs, they were getting it done. But I have to agree that if you put Barry Sanders behind off the line, you got a much better uh, you know, player in Barry Sanders than Emma Smith for sure.
0: Okay, so you're saying Barry Sanders is better than Emmett Smith? Oh yes, absolutely yes. I'm it's glad to hear being that we're here in Detroit and the uh, Lions still a little bit struggling. But uh, you know, it's always good to talk about Barry because you know those highlights still live to this day. All those great runs, man. He was definitely a great. He was a great guy to watch being a, a Lions fan as a kid for sure.
1: And, and if you weren't a Lions fan, you just love to watch him on Thanksgiving. I mean, he just made he made football fun to watch back in the day. I mean, he made it you know exciting to watch on Thanksgiving and you know, the Lions were playing. You know. He definitely was a guy she wanted to, to to idolize if you were running back, yeah, for sure.
0: Now, when you're at Howard, it was, it was very interesting in the book, Sleepless Nights, that you went to Howard and you majored in pre-med biology. And that told me that, yeah, you took um, not only your athletic career seriously, but I think you took your academic career seriously. How challenging was that to be a pre-med major and pl- being a being a college football player?
1: Unfortunately, I didn't finish through I wanted to start because of football and and practices and labs. But when I was in high school, I was going to be a doctor. My grandmother, my my maternal grandmother, was very much you know, like Doctor Ben Carson, gifted hands, very much into you know you know education first. So I took that that you know I just took I took that role with me to college. I made sure to you know you know be attentive. Now, of course, my first semester I kind of goofed off and I kind of just you know the freshman, you know, you know, you know, freedom and I didn't do so hot my first semester. Uh, but after that, and I straightened up and then I would switch majors to finance, um, which actually was my father's background. He was a investment banker before he got ill with uh Federal Home Loans Bank of New York. I actually did very, very well in finance. I graduated with like a, almost a three point eight in my major and like a three point three overall from Howard. So overall, once I kind of got past that first semester of and off, uh, education was prime number one uh, with, with, with me at, uh, in college.
0: Did you find it tough to balance, at that time, academics and school? I know that, you know, you, you being in finance, that's no easy major either.
1: No, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Uh, balancing both was definitely a full-time job. You know, I, I had to be sure to... Take care of all my classes, Take care of all my, you know, my labs, my preps, you know, my, you know, my different, you know, seminars, and uh, I did go to summer school to help, you know, alleviate some pressure during the season, which was good. Uh, I really, I really did truly like, uh, you know, my, my professors, my academic advisors. Howard University does a really good job of putting education first for all students and for student athletes as well. So I was very, very happy uh, when I switched majors to find out that, uh Miss Karen Hampton, Miss Karen Hampton, who was my academic advisor, was very strong in making sure I was on point, getting things accomplished uh, at at Howard while I was there.
0: So, in the time that you played football, how was the team? How was the football experience at uh, at Howard?
1: Howard was great. Uh, my head coach was Steve Wilson. I uh, played for the Dallas Cowboys and Denver Broncos for uh, about a good to eight, 18 year career as a cornerback. My offensive line coach was Fred Dean, who we went to Texas Southern, who played in the NFL with the Hawks with the Redskins, uh, back in the eighties, won a Super Bowl with Joe Gibbs as his head coach. Um we I think our best year uh I think our best year was probably either seven four, eight and, or eight and three. So we we had some good times. Um you know I, I really enjoyed playing with a couple guys who are still in the lead today. Uh, Antoine Bathea was a true freshman out of the Richard senior um who who actually is now still playing with San Francisco. Um, Ronald Bartell, uh, who we've been playing with St. Louis for a while. Uh, my buddy Brandon Torrey, who played from Pittsburgh and for open for a while. So we had a couple guys that came in and I had played with, you know, near the end of my career there, um, who are still playing today or who just recently retired from the NFL. So we had some talent. I mean, we we had some talent. And our stadium filled up, especially for the first couple games of the year. And if we were winning, the stadium stayed packaged or losing, which is like anything else. It's not going to be packed, but one thing I will say for sure, Doc, is nothing's better than a Howard homecoming. Let me tell you, like you see stars from Puff Daddy to uh, Jay Z to you know, uh, you know, guys, oh, what's your name, uh, Monique, or you know, you see all kind of superstars, you know, Brandy and everybody, you know, comes out. The Tori's Big was that Howard. I mean, everybody comes out to a Howard homecoming, so. To play there for for five years and actually be a four year starter during those Howard homecomings, and I remember one time I was a Richard sophomore and I actually got a chance to meet Puff Daddy on the sideline of Howard. Real nice guy. He had some bodyguards that made me look like tiny, uh, and I was I'm a six foot six. I'm not a small person, but um, you know all types of experiences that you get, that you get. You know, uh, Howard from the football program to the teammates to the reality of people that you see on TV, you know, Felicia Rashad, you know, know, Ahmad Rashad's wife, or he even came to Howard. I mean, all these type of people had at some point or another stopped by Howard's homecoming to watch a football game while I was playing there. So it's a great all-around experience all all around.
0: Wow, very, very fascinating. And then in the book, you talked about, you know, around your senior year, did you know that you had... Potential to be drafted in the early rounds. I know a great story in the book was you were out with friends at a nightclub and one of your there was an altercation and one of your boys you know took you aside, took you away from that incident and was like, "Listen, I, you can't mess up your draft status. You can't. Uh, we don't want nothing bad happening to you." And he he kind of looked out for you. Did, were you aware that uh, at the time what your draft status was, and did you kind of uh, you know realize that potentially you could have an NFL career?
1: Honestly, after my the summer before my retro senior year, I was talking to scouts and everybody was telling me about it. And, you know, you never too sure. Um, you know, the last game of my senior year when I didn't get injured and things were going up and all the scouts were coming out, I I knew then I had a really good opportunity. And then I went to the Hula Bowl in Maui and my head coach was Mac Brown, who uh, was the coach of the University of Texas at the time and I had guys on my team that were from Florida State, you know, Texas, Rice, uh, you know, Alabama, you name it. And our our opposing coach was Larry Coker, who was the head coach of the University of Miami at the time. Uh, He had guys on his team from the same respect, Miami, uh, you know, uh, LSU, you you name it. So when I went to the Hula Bowl, and I actually showed up very, very well against some top competition, as they call it, you know, that top-level competition, Florida State, you know, Miami and I did very well there, that was when I truly knew that, uh, you know, unless something was to go horribly wrong with my interviews, something like that, I was going to be trapped somewhere. I was hoping for the third or fourth round. Uh, that's what I was being told by a lot of people. Uh, I had a stellar, you know, uh, hula bowl, and I had a stellar performance. Uh, I think what had what dropped me and all my honesty, looking back, it was probably my strength. We didn't have a strength coach in college until I was probably a, a redshirt senior. So I didn't do as well as I would have liked on my bench. I think I got like 18 or 19. I wanted to get like 24, 25. Uh, you know, I ran, I ran a good time. I ran like a 4.95 in the 40, which was great. But a couple of the key strength elements uh, that you look for in linemen, I really didn't have that, uh, you know, because, again, I just it wasn't anybody's fault on my own. But I just didn't really have the ability to, to do the type of stuff that I needed to do. And, again, being young. I didn't have anyone to push me, which is again gonna be my fault because you know I should always you should always be a self starting or self motivated type of person to get things done.
0: Yeah, and around town, uh a name that's familiar here is your offensive line coach at the Hula Bowl was Jack Harbaugh, father of Jim and John Harbaugh. That's a big name around town. Uh do you recall any memories of working with uh Jack Harbaugh when you were at the Hula Bowl? Oh
1: yeah. Jack Harbaugh was phenomenal. Um, absolutely great guy. Um wasn't really great on the O line play, you know. Per se, which I do. He <laughs> was more of a quarterback guy. But Paul Brown is a good human being. Uh, Jim Harbaugh has played with my brother Jonathan uh, with the Ravens, so I knew him a little bit. Uh, I had not, I did not know anything about John at the time, but Jack was a was a true class, you know, classy guy. Very friendly, very engaging, uh, very communicative type of person. And I really enjoyed uh, learning from him for a few days in Maui while I was there. And then again, Mac Brown to me was absolutely a stellar man. Uh, I remember during halftime we were up big, and I was like, "Best coach in the world, right here, baby. It's Mac Brown. Just yeah, you know, just having some fun with the guy." And he enjoyed it, and you know, he really was very friendly and. Even though it was straight, it was a business trip for the players, he made you feel like you were having a good time at the same time. He said, look, guys, you're here to showcase yourself to be in the next level, but don't forget to have fun. You're in Maui. You're, you're 20, 21 years old. Do not forget to have fun while you're here.
0: Now, take us through the draft experience for yourself. Draft night comes, and you're, you're you're thinking, I know your dad told you, maybe you could go in the third round, and you're waiting, waiting for a team to call you. Uh, share with everybody, it was, it was greatly depicted in your book, Sleepless Nights. Uh, take us through your draft experience in, going into the NFL.
1: It was interesting. Um, you know, waiting on the phone day one, I knew the first two rounds wasn't going to be anything. I wasn't expecting anything at that time. Third round came along, a couple teams called, you know, who's called to you, what's going on, This, that the other They say, okay, good, we'll get back to you, hang up. Fans don't see that, like, you don't know, that's what I mean about the book that I really like, like, I'm taking you through, you're feeling, you're feeling like you're me, like, you're a guy who's out of college, who's young, who's fresh, you know, ready to go out and, you know, and, and hit, the, uh, hit the, the pastures and grades with, the, with the other NFL players, and... It's a waiting game. In all honesty, you could be the best person at your position on the board, but they may not need your position. So I remember talking to Cincinnati, Cleveland. Uh, I remember talking to uh, the Rams, you know, all these teams on day one. And day one goes by at the end, last pick of the third round. I don't get a phone call. The day the draft's over for the day. I'm like, oh, man, man, this is not good. Oh, I, I, I did so well. At the hula hoop. Then you start to question and doubt yourself, like, what's going on here? So that night I kind of stayed to myself and didn't really do anything. My father was uh, at home and my brother was in Vegas. I was at my brother's house in Baltimore. And I remember day two comes around, first round, first you know, round four starts up, you know, a lot of teams are calling, you know, left and right. Then fourth round goes by, I get a ball call at the beginning of the fifth round from Dallas. Uh, the, line, the coach said, one of the scouts said, you know, Jerry Jones loves what you do. Bill Parcells likes your attitude, the way you finished blocks in the Hula Bowl. Uh, we saw the way you did really well against the second-round draft, take Alonzo Jackson for State in the practice. We love your style. We think you did a great pick for Dallas. I'm like, great. you guys still taking this round? Right then they're like, nope. I'm like, why are you? I'm thinking I'm, I didn't say it. I, didn't, I did not say this. I'm thinking to myself, so why are you calling me? Like, you know, I didn't say it, that, of course. So that goes down, and then and then the fifth, I get phone calls from Jacksonville, uh, Cleveland, Cincinnati saying, hold on, we're going to be back. To you. you know, the beginning of the sixth round starts, it's like number 189, right? I'm like, they go by, they go by. And then I get a phone call back from Dallas saying, okay, all right, stay tight. Just sit tight. they like to them a 196. If you're still there, we're taking you at 196. 196, 197, I forget, but we're, we're going to take you to pick. I said, okay, oh, hey, great. So I hung up and I'm like, man, I'm going to be a Cowboy. I'm like, this is this is funny. I'm from D.C. I'm, I'm going to be a Dallas Cowboy. And kick number 192, it goes down. And then the sixth one, number 192 goes down. Jack Derrillo calls me at 193. I'm like, hello? I'm like, is Marcus? I'm like, yes, how are you doing, coach? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Who's been calling you? I said, oh, Cleveland, you know, Dallas, you know, all that. I didn't want to tell us him that Dallas was going to take me because I didn't want to know that. You know, I didn't want to tell him. So, as I like staying there, letting like, him know, like the "Cleveland's call, Marvin Lewis call." Because Marvin Lewis and him were on the same coaching staff for the Super Bowl back in 2000. So Marvin and Jack the know each other very, very well. Make a long story short, Jack's saying, "Okay, Marcus, i by to go away. Uh, we're drafting you here now at Dallas, number one, nine, three. I'll see you soon, Jacksonville." Comes the phone. I was like, "He's kidding. There's no way. He just he's joking." Because the bottom of the screen on ESPN, Jacksonville Jaguars at pick number 193, select so like Marcus Ogden, Office of Lyman, University of High... I'm sorry, pick number 193, Marcus Ogden, High University, Office of Lyman. I was like, wow. And at that moment, everything that I had done, from football to puking out, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the summer workouts to, you know, going to the hula bowl to all my interviews to all my trips that I traveled, everything that I had done, it came down to pick number 193, Jack Del Rio, uh, James Shaq Harris, who was the general was the personnel director, and Wayne Weaver saw enough in me to pick me at number 193, and I was officially an NFL football player at that time.
0: Yeah, you told a great story in the book about, you know, the NFL does these symposiums for rookies and they introduce like, hey, this is the lifestyle potentially that's going to happen. This is how people are going to treat you. You told a fascinating story that stuck with you, that resonated with you about uh, the perils of NFL groupies and how to interact with the opposite sex. Take us through that because when I read that, I was like, wow, you actually took it and really... At the symposium, you really took the lessons to heart, and uh, you you kind of early on lived a, a pretty good life with uh, with off the field kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, we were all about know, Our symposium was in West Palm Beach, Florida, so we were in Jacksonville. So me, by our left, which was Rasheed Mathis, the Manowai, uh... Brandon Green, uh... David Young, the Brandon Tofield, this, and then uh, at montgomery follow we all we actually took a bus. From Jacksonville down to West Palm Beach, we actually stopped the night before at Disney, and we all had a great time. Went out, you know, to the you know, Beauty Sound Stage, we really had a great time, man. Just, you know, with the guys, hanging out, you know, no trouble or anything. It's very, very laid back, but it's nice to have that camaraderie. So we got to we got to some post, and the next day at uh, the hotel. They had security everywhere. The hotel was, was like a was like, was like Fort Knox. Like you could not get in there unless you were with a, t- a player for each team. There was 250 Three so first, you know, you know, first time draft pick guys at a hotel. that were in the NFL. I remember I saw, uh, I saw Carson Palmer. We hung out with him. Uh, I saw Troy Palomalu. uh We saw. I, mean, I saw a bunch of guys. You know, that I had seen. Trading you know, Florence. A lot of guys. Frank Walker. I mean, guys that I even up to to uh, uh, All Star games with, or guys that I had played against, or guys that you know, I do, or whatever. So it's just great to see everybody. And they had a lot of different seminars throughout the day, you know, like financial literacy, uh, you know, how to make yourself better you know, person professionally, how to brand yourself, all that. Well, one of the seminars was, you know, nothing is what it seems. They had a very beautiful young lady walking around the hotel in a gold dress. Uh, you know, she was just, you know, flirting with people. If you flirt with her, she flirt back with you or, you know, little no, no back and forth, you know, harmless stuff, right? So everybody, everybody was just talking over her. Well, at that seminar, nothing is what it seems, she got up. And she was on the panel and then she came up to the podium and she spoke. She said, you know, Hey guys, my name is, but you know, all you guys were flirting with me and I was flirting back with you and things of that nature. Well, God, I'm here to tell you that I'm actually HIV positive. And we were all like the whole room got silent. When I say silent, no one said a word. We were like, wow, this is absolutely insane. So then, you know, at that time, I was like, man, like a gut wrenching experience hit me. Like, this is crazy. Like, one bad choice can alter not just your career, but your whole life. From that point forward, I looked at every woman with a side eye. Like, okay, what do you want from me? Like, do you have something? Like, what's, what's the deal? Like, you know, what's your, what's your agenda? What's your motive? Like, what's, what are you really here for? Like, I looked at them, every woman with a with side eye after that one experience. The NFL did a great job. And it's hired partners in displaying that at the the, the symposium. I remember a lot of things there, but that is going to stick with me for the rest of my life. You know, and when I saw that, I was like, wow, this was all put on by the NFL. The NFL was doing, was making a point to us to say, hey, guys, focus on your careers. And then if you start looking at the opposite sex, be very, very cautious and aware that everything that glitters is not gold.
0: We're speaking with Marcus Ogden. He's been kind enough to chat one on one with the doc. I just finished reading his book, Sleepless Nights, The NFL a business and family. It's a great book. You can follow him at Marcus underscore Ogden. And if you follow us on our Twitter page at Detroit Podcast, we'll definitely throw out several links to get this great book. It's a great book, Marcus, and I've enjoyed reading it, enjoyed the story. Now, getting back into your first training camp, I know that it's very, you know, for for rookies going into the NFL, it's very tough, that first training camp in terms of working hard, preparing the nerves, wondering if you're going to make the team. That first training camp experience is, is definitely challenging, and you you described it very well in the book.
1: Doc, there's nothing like that first time you're on an NFL field for OTAs, as you know, as, as you know, with just the rookies getting that kind of you know putting on your, that jersey and the helmet and going through the new plays and you know, there's taking through the baby steps. I mean, it's it's great, you know, really is. But when training camp starts, it's a whole nother animal because a training camp. You are, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day. It's 70% for yourself and 30% for the team because you have to actually make a team. You have to show you belong in the NFL. I remember, I'll never forget this, to the day I died. It was the day before training camp. I was out there with Mark. I was out there working on some stuff, some sets, and working on this, working on that. And one of my bets, Maurice Williams, was also a tackle from Michigan, was giving me some advice. And then we had Mike Pearson from Florida, who was kind of helping me out as well, some stuff. And I just kind of just thought about this, thought about that. I was like, you know what? Let me go and talk to Marco. And Marco said, you know, Rook, I've been watching. You. You've been doing a good job. Now, Marco at the time was probably a 16-year bet. Dolphins, you know, you know Chargers, Redskins, he, he was a, a solid bet. And he said, Marcus, you're doing really well. But I'm going to tell you this. If I look across the line and I look in your eyes and I can see fear, you're a dead man. You will not be, you will not last. My job as a defensive lineman is to tear your head off. Your job is to stop me from hitting your quarterback or running back. Who's going to win? Now, you know where the ball is going. I don't. You You know the count. I don't. But I can use my hands a lot more than you can and other things to my advantage. But I remember him telling me that if you're scared, you cannot show it. He said, if you show fear on this football field to an opposing defender, you might as well just go ahead and take your pads off and your cleats up and go home. I remember in a practice, I got beat as that training camp had already started. And actually, I saw him. He's a good friend of mine. I saw him about maybe two weeks ago. His name was Aiken Ayadele. He had, an, uh, Aiken had a nice little, Aiken had a nice little 10-11-year career. as was an outside linebacker, played at Purdue. He played with the Jaguars. And then he ended up playing his last few years with, with the Bills as an outside linebacker. Aiken played outside linebacker in decent event. He beat me in practice, a notepad, you know, practice is out there, you know, going through the motions, you know, during training camp now, of course, for six sacks, six. Wow. And I remember Del Rio telling me, you know what, Rooks, it, no, it gets no worse than this. My line coach, Paul Boudreaux, said, Mark, you have two choices, man. You know, you can either ban up or go home. I literally sat in my locker for about an hour after that practice. Just sat in the locker, sat, looking, looked at my locker, looked at my helmet. I was like, you've got two choices. You can either, one, go into Del Rio's office, say, thank you very much, Coach, for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. You have a phenomenal football team here, but I don't belong. And then walk out and go home. Or man up, go home, lick my wounds, soak in the salt in the bathtub, come back the next day, strap my up a little, bit, a little bit tighter, pull my chest shirt down a little bit harder, open my pants a little bit tighter, and go to work and make a football team and I chose option two. But I'm never going to forget what Marco Coleman told me. I will never, ever forget. If hey, I had to be need for six sacks in practice and basically turning my career around at that time to have an NFL career and play as a job, not just a, not just a stick.
0: And also you wrote in the book that, you know, a little bit started in college. Your father's illness kind of played a, a big part in your career as well because it, it weighed on your mind. Uh, in college, you had a hard time dealing with it. Your father's illness... When you were a pro, how did that affect you, and when did it really ultimately uh, play a significant part in you deciding to walk away from the game?
1: My father's illness started when I was in uh, high school. He got kidney failure from being obese. He started to, to deteriorate rapidly, and he got more frail and more weak. Uh, and when I got drafted, I wanted him to move down with me to Florida, but he really couldn't because Jonathan was in Baltimore. He still, and my father was dating somebody that I really, really liked uh, for him and you know things of that nature. I remember in 2006, I was playing for the Buffalo at the time, and uh, my uncle died, uh, my dad's brother. And I remember I was in Buffalo, and I pushed Mike Malarky, was my head coach. I had Malarkey and Dick Arm. Milakis allowed me to go to the funeral, and I saw my father at the funeral. I hadn't seen him in about a good six months or so from being at playing and being up in New York, and he, he had to come up for a game. Cause he was just so frail from you know, and from his uh, dialysis. I remember Doc when I saw him, I was like, oh no this does not look good. Like I'm getting a bad feeling here. I'm like, this is not looking good. Like my dad had already lost um, three brothers uh, to, up to that time, including my uncle just passed away from stomach cancer. So my grandfather had already buried uh, three sons. He has five boys. He already had buried three sons. One was 50, one was two, one was a couple days old. When I saw him, I was like, this is just not good. This is just not good. So I remember that summer, my dad was actually uh, going into uh, you know open heart surgery. He had he had a uh, a disease called well he had a uh, he had an issue called constrictive pericarditis, where all with the valves around your heart tight and you can't pump blood normally or or uh, uh, fluidly. So I remember he had open heart surgery and everything was going well. I was, in, I was in I was in I was at Baltimore for the time I was there, and I ended up you know going to see him after surgery in ICU, He's doing fine, was recovering. Ended up. Uh, doc, I got a phone call two days later, which July 26, 2006, saying that my dad had gone to cardiac arrest. I was like, what? So I literally, it was like 2.20 in the morning, an hour and a 50-minute drive took me an hour, I'm a, little over, a little over an hour, give or take. I arrived at the hospital at 3.28 a.m. The doctor came in and told me about 3.30, he was pronounced dead, at 3.21 a.m. Wow, seven uh, minutes, wow. Seven minutes. It was the hardest thing I ever had to deal with in my life because the day before when I saw him, I wanted to talk to him and speak to him and see how he was doing. He kicked me out. He kicked me out of the room to get rest. He said, Marcus, I love you. Time to get out. Go home. I don't, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. Never got to, never, I never got to see tomorrow. The hardest thing I ever had to do was call my brother that morning, and literally, it was like a gut wrenching scream. I never heard a 6'9, 380 pound man ache in my life. And that was probably the toughest ball call I ever had to make in my life. So I had to call my brother to my father was gone.
0: In your NFL career, where were, you, where were your stops?
1: Trapped in to Jacksonville and then played there for, uh, for well, about two years, which is great. Then I went to Baltimore with the Ravens for a year, which is phenomenal. Um, we had some coaching switches. Um, you know, we, I lost off the line. Coach Jim Coletto, he left Baltimore. He wanted to move up to OC. They didn't give him a job. So he left. I didn't get along with the new O-line, Coach Chris Forrester. And that, again, was my fault. I did not really learn how to sit down and talk with him like a man about what I, how I could become better. I then went to Buffalo under Jim McNally, which was a great place, uh, which was awesome. I loved it. Uh, McNally was phenomenal. Mike Malarkey was a great guy. Still is a great coach today. Uh, then I had Ditch Ron there. Uh, that was going really well. But then, of course, with my father's death, I kind of just, you know, decided not to renew my contract after that because I just needed time. I just was dealing with things too much. It was all too much. And then after that, I was going to give it up. But then the Titans called me, and I said, okay, this is great. So I to play with the Tennessee for about a year, um, and that was really nice. uh with Jeff Fisher and Mike Munchak. And then, again, when my back locked up, I ended up giving up my career at that time. So I played with uh, Jacksonville and Baltimore. In Buffalo, and then I finished up with Tennessee before I, uh, I retired.
0: Now, one of, obviously one of the perks of playing in the NFL is receiving that first check with uh, a significant number on it. When you first got that paycheck after you made the team in Jacksonville after that first training camp, do you recall that first memory? And how did you handle coming into uh, large sums of money your, oh, your, your freshman year I re- or your rookie year?
1: I remember. I remember. I was talking to Mike Peterson, who was a middle linebacker from University of Florida. He was a, probably a 19-year vet, played in Atlanta, and then was with us at Jacksonville. I literally told Mike, I was like, Mike, is there a mistake here? Like, you know, this is it? Really? Like, wow. Like, this is, this is this is all mine? Literally, my eyes just got big. I was like, I had never seen a check that large uh, in my life. Never. And it was amazing because, you know, I was like, wow, this is. It's no longer a game. It's a way of life. It's a living. It's a livelihood. When that first check hits your hands, and it's not like an OTA check. It's not a training camp check. When that first game check hits your hands, it's a 22-year-old, 20, 20, 20, 21 or 22-year-old rookie, whatever your age is, and you actually see it in your hand. You're like, dad, go on, man. This is real. So for me... When I told Peter, Mike Peterson and Akin Iadele and a couple of the other guys, I'm like, wow, man, it's an absolutely surreal feeling. I knew at that time, Doc, it was no longer a game. It was a way of life. It was a way to pay the bills to live life.
0: What was your first, uh, what was one of the purchases that you made early on that uh, you might have spent a uh, little, per- little bit of money not, on? My
1: my first purchase was with a, a brand new car. I bought a 2003 kind of like escalate off the lot that's the only thing i ever bought that was a big time i lived in an apartment i bought a very nice simple home in Jacksonville. that's a, a real estate property other than the Escalade, i had never bought anything else uh, of a high value never so when i got out of the league i had the money saved up i had great money saved up i had i had i had been very frugal very penny pinching uh, i had been very um wise with my investments and my money. Uh, so I got, I got, I got, I got a nice little nest egg. I was very comfortable uh, for, to live when I got out of the NFL. I, I used the NFL to help me build a, a base for myself to, to start life out when I got out of the NFL.
0: Now, an interesting part of the book was you're talking about you know, your reaction to your father's death. It was very overwhelming, obviously, to the family. It's a big shock. You got into alcohol abuse. You were drinking very heavily, but you also gambled. You played poker, and in order to try to cope with your dad, because you said it in the book that poker is a mind-numbing game, and you tried to do anything you could to deal with your father's death. How did you get into poker, and, you know, what's it like playing 24 to 36 hours straight at a card table?
1: I learned how to play poker from my grandmother, uh, as a pastime when I was younger. Uh, five card draw or, you know, stuff like that just to have fun. We played for pennies, things of that nature. I actually got hooked into the big, you know, late nineties, early two thousands poker rush. You remember like the World Series of poker on yep. ESPN and yep. all that. They had like the they had like the uh, the game show that we had like the high stakes poker and all that stuff was on TV at the time, Doyle Brunson and so everything it was like a big big surge rush like right there in the early 2000s so i got hooked on it at that time played a couple of video games with it just basic stuff and next thing you know i got to the nfl i started really playing um at a dog track an illegal dog track in jacksonville and that kind of started my whole you know my whole train but at the time it was very very you know minuscule very you know you know very just you know uh very, very, you know, just, you know, limited uh, play. You know, I played for a couple hours here and there. It wasn't anything like that uh, until when my father died and I had lost my best friend. I had lost my, you know, my connect, my real strong connection with that person. I had nothing left to kind of keep me out of, tru- out of trouble. My brother was going through his stuff on his own, and I totally understand. My mother was dealing with things on her, in her own way. So everybody dealt things differently. My outlay was I used to love to go to Lake City, drive there two two and a half hours from Baltimore up to New Jersey, stay right at the uh, you know at Harris, you know, and I go right to the poker room. Or go over to uh, to Tropicana, uh, and I would just sit there, free drinks, and you know, as lounge had chips in front of you. Doc, they kept serving you alcohol, You'd give them a dollar per a tip, and you could sit there for hours upon hours upon hours. It's no a- wife, no child, no loved ones to be accountable to. It was just me, the bottle, the cards. That's all it was.
0: Yeah, and I, you know, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, okay. I got into poker the same way, except I was at way smaller stakes. I liked, I never got into No Limit Hold'em. I liked Limit Games because then I knew, okay, hey, if I'm going to win a pot, I'm going to win a couple hundred bucks. And if I lose a pot, uh, you know, I'm not going to crush my bankroll all in one shot. So Limit Games, <laughs> Limit Hold'em attracted me, and I got kind of good at it. So um, what kind of games did you play at the casino? Did you play No Limit Hold'em? oh well, and uh, did you? Oh, yeah, I was, how I, how good were you?
1: Oh, I was good. I was really good. If I was sober, I was good. <laughs> if I was drinking, it was it was it was it was it was a, it was a crap shoot. I literally played one two no limit, two five no limit, five ten no limit. I I played big games because I still had good savings from from my NFL career. I had other money that was coming in at the time. Uh, you know, I wasn't. I had no real debt, no family, no no expenses. So I had to sit down with thousand dollars at a table. And then I got yep. hooked on going to Delaware for a little while back in like you know that, uh, when my construction company failed. We'll get into that in a little bit. I got hooked on going to Delaware for a while and then playing up there. You know, it was, it was probably an hour away from Baltimore between. It was actually right in between New Jersey and uh, Baltimore. You know, from Atlantic City to Baltimore. So I used to go there. I used to play the big two five no limit. You know, I mean, I literally would would play for hours upon hours upon hours, and it was. Looking back at it, it was really sad that I did that. And I'm really, I've learned my mistakes. I still do play poker today at a casino uh, in a controlled environment. But I'll play for two, three hours, maybe four at the most if I'm playing, if I'm if I'm, you know, if I'm on vacation, if I'm having some good runs of cars. But nothing past four hours, no matter what. You know, I've I've got, you know, responsibilities and, you know, I've got a family and things of that nature now. So I'm much more cognizant, much more aware of how to be professional and how to be, you know, how to carry myself accordingly when I'm I'm gambling now.
0: You got any famous uh, bad beat stories?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I've, I've I've had hands where I've had the nut, you know, the nut, you know, boat, and guy bops a four of a kind on me in the river. Oh, uh, I mean, I, I've had I, I've had it all. I've had the I've had the uh, you know the rounders, you know, uh, yep. you know, ten K G B, you know, you know, beats and stuff of that nature, and I, I've seen it all at poker. I believe really, I believe really I've seen it all.
0: Yeah, we'll talk uh, definitely after uh, we'll we'll chat later on because I play poker and uh, talking talking cards is, is quite fun for sure.
1: Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean it's anytime you can play poker of a of a in a controlled environment where you're in a very you know safe and protected environment. I I tell people all the time, it's a fun game to play. Just be sure you can afford what you lose. That's all the thing I tell people. Whatever you lose, make sure you can afford to lose. Otherwise, do not play cards.
0: Now, after your father's passing and you you, you went through the process of trying to deal with it the best way you could at post NFL career, how did you get into business?
1: When I was during the NFL, I was playing uh, so I'm sorry, during my NFL career, I attended a couple of seminars uh, and a couple of programs uh, the NFL had. One was the uh, USC development program. I went out there, did some business course studying, got to get ha- some some great notes and great notation about how to run a business things of that nature. I decided to start T- for me Enterprises. Uh, was a construction company that I started uh, in 2008, uh, right where I was still playing at the time but ready to retire. I remember I met two potential business partners. I vetted both of them through, like, court system. One came up with the fraud. The other one passed. We got rid of the one guy. We started the company, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, small, you know, had a couple guys on staff. Next thing you know, in a couple of years, we grew from, like, you know, zero dollars to, like, $3 million in, like, three years. And then by that time, Doc, I found out that my business partner really was not as good as I thought he was. Uh, He really wasn't very good at commercial construction. He was more of a residential construction guy. So, and also during that time, I was building the company on the wrong foundation, wrong people, wrong, wrong employees. But let's go back to make sure I'm clear on this point too, Doc. It was all my fault. Not my partners, not my employees. No one put a gun in my head to hire this person. No one put a gun in my head to become a partner with that guy. So throughout the process, Doc, I was very, very much growing a company on the wrong foundation and the wrong platform. And eventually, in the summer or the spring slash summer of 2012, Doc, that, fi- that finally caught up with me when I, when I got into one job too many and my company basically went from being on cloud nine to being, you know, at the bottom of the barrel.
0: Yeah, it was one of those things that in the book you describe in detail of, ter- in terms of maybe your style as a boss, letting some things go, taking on the projects that maybe you just weren't ready to at the time, and it really was, an, you know, a fascinating read to learn how when you had that big a project, you literally went through a couple million dollars in this better in a better part of three months.
1: Yeah, I, I took on a project for the third largest general contractor in the country. They were out of the northeastern part of the country. The job was in Baltimore City uh, at Johns Hopkins Hospital, one of, of course, one of the largest hospitals in the world. The job was the DHMH Health Laboratory. We were doing the total site package for the project. with about a $4 million project. Everything was going phenomenal. We were, de- we were de- demolitioning the asphalt, and we started to haul off dirt and put it in stone, and we were rolling. We had 40, 50 trucks a day, getting hauling dirt out. We were killing it. Got my first $1.1 million check from the project after about three months of being on it, you know, after setting up the mobilization and getting things on ready to roll. It was great. Then we hit a snag on the project, Doc. Uh, The project had to be dewatered or had the site dry, put in the concrete, you know, footing to take the building vertical. Well, my contractor out of Texas did their job. They left and then the site wasn't still dry. And I said, you guys are going to come back. So well, we're not going to come back. We've got to finish our scope of work. So the owner in the GC said, well, Marcus, this is brought up by you. You have to finish this. Like, either finish this or we're going to pull your bond, and then we're going to put you into a top position. Looking back on it, Doc, I really, really wish I would have got some, some counsel and got some advice from some people and figured out what my what my real position was. But I trusted my partner. and But, again, it was all my fault. Ended up on the project where I asked my partner, should we do this work? He said, yes, we can get it done, no problem. I was young and probably like, I just turned 30. Uh, I didn't really know construction that well. I learned on the fly, but I wasn't really like I am today as far as knowledgeable about my business. So ended up taking on the project um, the change, the extra, extra, extra work to get the site dry. Now, unfortunately I did not get a change order. This we'll come back to this in the end to bite me. So after getting work stock on the project and doing all the work with all the employees and the extra labor, materials, sums, you name it. You name it. I was about $2 million spent in 90 days. I was averaging fifty to $60,000 a week in payroll, a week. Wow. And then, and,
0: yeah.
1: Yep. So when I finished, I got everything. To, there was, now, there was a river 30 feet below the job site that no one knew about. I think people knew it, it didn't tell us. Anyway, doesn't make a difference. So I went to get my change order paid back by the owner, and the GC said, Marcus, thank you very much. Caden, phenomenal job. We are not going to pay your change order. We do not have it in the budget to to pay your $2 million expense. At that time, Doc, that was it for me. I mean, I had exhausted every resource of my line of credit or lines of credit. I had maxed out every credit card, business and personal. I had cashed in every stock investment that I had. I had cashed in on everything, everything. I had to finish this project, finish the project, but did not get paid what I was owed by the owner in GC. And that literally in ninety days is how you go bankrupt.
0: Yeah, and you talked about it in the book uh, about you know at, at that time you were just starting a relationship. You were with someone that you cared about. Now, in the relationship, she had an eight year old daughter. So now you're worrying about money. And in the end, what was very fascinating and what's not talked about is you went to the Gene Upshaw Trust Fund with the NFL to get some help. And they were a saving grace to help you, you know, get kick started in terms of getting back on your feet and really helping somebody out who was a former player. Talk about the Gene Upshaw Trust Fund program and how it really helped you.
1: Well, as I was closing Kane's doors and I. Filing for personal bankruptcy and closing the doors to go into my next phase of life. I was cleaning out my desk and I found my NFL players card in my desk. I looked at it. I picked up the phone. I called Andre Collins, the senior director of the Players Assistance Fund uh, and the player and the NFL Player Care Foundation. Went in to see him in D.C. He said, "Marcus, look, we're, you know, we checked the database. Different jobs like Kansas, uh, you know, L.A., you know, you know, New York." They found the perfect fit for a job in Durham, North Carolina, where my wife's family was probably about 20 minutes away uh, from us. One of the best things ever happened to me from a faith perspective, family perspective, you name it. So then, uh, then, Doc, as I was doing that, Andre Collins also said, Marcus, please fill out the Gene Upshaw Players Assistance Trust Fund application. It's a program that they have when NFL players get fined or other money that's put into the organization through the NFL Players Care Foundation or the NFLPA Full Players Association. That money goes into a kitty and it's called the Gene Upshaw Trust Assistance Fund. You have to apply for it. You have to fill out paperwork, show your tax returns, your bank information. Like It's a very expensive, not just like, hey, I need money, congratulations. It's a very thorough process that the NFLPA and Player Care Foundation board puts you through to see if you're a viable candidate. So when I was here, coming home from Merrill Lynch, I know I love Merrill Lynch people, but I hate the job. I love sales, not that type of sales. Anyway, if I was coming home from work, and it was in May, I got in, I, my wife called me. My my fiance at the time now. My wife called me. She said, Marcus, the NFL sent a letter. And they have approved us for a four-month grant through the NFL Player Care Foundation and the Gene Upshaw Trust Assistance Fund. I was like, "What?" turned out to be fourteen thousand dollars that they paid out through bills to my landlord, to uh, different companies, and different you know bill you know different like you know my heat, my electric, you name it, my car. Doc, that allowed me to, to breathe, get on my feet, and then to restart my life and to restart my dream. And that's kind of how it got started. The NFL played a very pivotal role in getting me to where I am today. And again, this is why in the book, I'm so very honest and candid and very appreciative and thankful to the NFL because it get such a bad rep these days. That's where the family side comes in. Like the NFL, even though it's a business, it's still a family. I had not made them any money in years, probably three or four years at a time, give or take. They still found a way to help me. Because I was a former player that bled and sweat and you know and, and, and did what I had to do to help, you know, to earn a career, to help the NFL have a good image. Everything that I had done for the NFL, they felt as a duty and a privilege, I'm sorry, as a duty and a, and, a, and, a, and a self-responsibility, excuse me, to, bear, to help me in my dire time of need. It's a financial bridge gap assistance. It is not a crutch. You have to go through emotional counseling, mental counseling, credit counseling, the whole nine yards. It's not just going to be a, like, hey, here's my, let's just go to work. it's not like a, like a, um, you know, like a crutch, you know, or a, you know, like a step fast. It's a short term financial bridge assistance gap. That's what it's designed for, to help you through those tough four or five months that you need help with, to get back on your feet, to restart your life. That's what it's for. And I took full advantage of that program. And thankfully, between Andre Collins and Roman Oden, who's on the board, and all the other members, they felt that I was deserving of this opportunity. And when they blessed me with it, I took it to a full opportunity and took full advantage of it to be where I'm at now today, writing a book and becoming an accomplished public speaker and traveling the country and the world to do. What I love to do, which is a passion about helping people through leadership roles, helping people through, you know, getting themselves stable. I'm actually in the process right now. I'm actually outlining two more books. I'm going to get together a like an outline for it, and I'm going to shop both books to different publishers to see who wants to pick up my next, to pick up my next book.
0: The book is Sleepless Nights, the NFL a Business and Family. It's a great read. It reads very smooth. It's the story of Marcus Ogden, his his journey through the NFL, the ups and downs of his career, dealing with personal tragedy uh, on the family front, dealing with tragedy on a business front, and not only dealing with the ups and downs of life, but also the, what makes the story fascinating is that... Everyone goes through things that are challenging, but in the end, Marcus has come out the other side a very well-respected man. He's doing well, he's written books, and he's now on a crusade to, to highlight the positives, of the NFL, So much has been talked about uh, negative regarding uh, things that are going on in the NFL. Marcus is on a crusade to highlight some great programs going on with the NFL. I thank you so much for sharing your story and talking one-on-one with the Doc. I know some things were tough to talk about, but you were candid, and I appreciate your time so much.
1: No problem, man. I have to say, John, also I'll be doing an eight-city book tour. I'll be having one in Raleigh, Baltimore, D.C., uh, New Orleans, Las Vegas, L.A., Orange County, and San Diego. We're going to come back for round two with regard to Detroit, to Louisville, Chicago, Miami. We're going to go to some major stops on round two. I signed on with uh, Sports 1 Marketing that's owned by the illustrious Mr. Warren Moon uh, and his partner, David Meltzer, uh, who's a a national top ten best-selling author. So I brought those guys on to help me out uh, with my tour, with uh, fixing up like my one sheet and preparing all my other stuff, public speaking, uh, to do that. So that's going on. I have a woman I work with, him, Terry, Ker- Karen Litz-Gallagher, who helps me with my brand as well. Of course, my wife is very integral as well. But at the end of the day, you can also pick up our book doc on Amazon.com, uh, Barnes & Noble, or Books a Million. We right now have 14 five-star reviews. We are a best-selling book. We became a best-seller within a week of being released. After About two days after being released, we broke into the top 30 globally for football books, American football across the world. And then we also broke into the top 500 with Barnes & Noble for all types of books sold. And then we also were almost in the top 500 for books in the category of money and business with Amazon as well. So right now, it's it's getting great reviews. Uh, you can get it on Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Uh, the reviews are coming in strong. Uh, it's being highly decorated as a great read, uh, easy read, and at the same time, it's about humility and self responsibility. I blame nobody in this book but myself, and if you can take responsibility for that and have accountability, doc, this world will be a much better place.
0: And just in general, if you know, I know you're you're busy now with with the work that you're doing with the NFL, but You know, also keep an eye, there's an offensive line position potentially opening up with the Detroit Lions, looking through new management. So, hey, any eye on coaching in the future for Marcus Ogden?
1: Uh, Honestly, yes. I've been coached by three of the best people ever to coach or play in the game. I've had my brother, who was the best left tackle ever. I had Jim McNally, and then I had Mike Munchak. Between the three of them, I took their styles and I blended them, and I've got to be very, very good at teaching the game off the line play to people. One of my clients is on your football team right now, Mr. Corey Robinson. i work with him a little bit. South Carolina's on your roster right now off the tackle. Corey has to get a little bit faster and get a little bit more, uh, a little bit more agile with his footwork, which will come in time. I think if he does that, he'll be he'll be a good football player. I've got another guy who's on the uh, on the roster with Buffalo, Tyson Chandler. Uh, right tackle who, who played for the last year for MT State. So I've got a couple guys in the league that work off also line play that are still playing or playing now in the NFL today.
0: Thank you so much for talking with the doc one on one. Hey if you're ever a coach, no coach speak. Gimme give, give it to me straight if I intervie- right. if I interview you.
1: All right. sounds good, man. I'll talk to you soon doc.